You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, it's episode 206 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. We are two weeks away from our four-year, our true four-year anniversary, and we have GameMat.eu to thank for that, for beautiful, sexy, good-smelling terrain and neoprene mats and uh, STL files. And then we have our resin and pre-painted Patreon patrons, and uh, they also help us out, and we, we love them. We snuggle. Anyway, what am I talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm already off the rails tonight. We have a Tesseract mailbox with Andrew, and he asks, how do you get your groove back into Warhammer? Which is something I've been struggling lately with, and I feel like I have gotten back in the groove. So we discuss that. We also have the Underworld's Hex Mark Maze, Hex Make Maze something. I don't know. It's a bunch of Witch Hunters, or maybe Vampire Hunters. And uh, we discussed that. And then the real talk is, have we lost the soul of Warhammer? Do we play it all wrong? Do we, are we all meta? Is that all we are now? And it might be a different take than you've seen before, because it's something that just occurred to me recently after 13 years of playing. So uh, some of my segments tonight are running a little long. So this intro is going to be a little shorter. Um, I played a game with James just yesterday, just yesterday, and uh, it was a fantastic game, but I'll get into details of that in the real talk. And then I also played this Wednesday, and I played with one of our new players, Ryan, and we played Sylvaneth versus Josh's Night Haunt, and it was a fantastic game. Very, very good. I was actually you know, paying attention to my rules and thinking clearly and all of that. And uh, we were winning by, no, no, we were tied in the very last game, the last turn of the game, and we went first. And we were tied, and then he was able to score one point. So he beat us 21 to 20, I think it was. And uh, so we almost tied, but uh, it was still very fun. Anyway, what else have I been up to? Um, other than work, not a whole lot. I've been... Oh, I painted some Necrons, but I also get into that in the Tesseract mailbox. So let's just get on with the show, and you'll see what it's all about. How about that? Oh, if you missed last episode, um, for some reason, the uh, the pod bean said that it was uh, uploaded, but then it wasn't. So... I do appreciate one of our Patreon patrons, Grendel, contacting me and going, hey, I know you're busy with work and all, but um, are you okay? Because you didn't post a podcast. And I was like, nah, man, you know what? That's really sweet of you. That's very nice of my friends to list- look out for me and make sure I'm okay. Um, you're right. I would find it very hard to miss an actual podcast episode, but I ended up having to upload it Monday night um, because it was just something weird. I don't know. I actually had to delete the whole thing and then post it again on Podbean. And then that time it took. So I don't know what the deal was because I kept uploading the same file and it kept saying something like file extension error or something, but the file was totally fine. And not until I deleted it and reposted it completely, did it go through fine. So I have no idea what was going on there, but it's resolved now. Hopefully this one posts with no issues. Anyway, let's get on to the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. 
And for this Tisseract mailbox, we have a letter at pimpcron at gmail.com with two Ps, as you do. And it is from multi-shorehammer grand champion, Andrew. And Andrew writes in, he says, Hi, Pimpcron. I know your work schedule is probably similar to mine in the amount of hours. How do you keep the urge to hobby flowing? Yeah, keep the urge to hobby flowing. I'm usually more excited to assemble and paint when there are new releases or events, but my armies are not really changing until next year. Beasts of Chaos, Flesh Eater Courts, and World Eaters. And except for Shorehammer, I'm having a hard time staying motivated in hobby. How do you fight the Warhammer Blues? You may have talked about this before, but I want to hear it again, Andrew. <laughs> okay, so number one. Thank you for writing in, Andrew. I greatly appreciate it. And I do know for a fact that Andrew is kind of part of our gaming group. He's got a very, very busy life. He works multiple jobs. He's got a wife and kids and all that. So I only get to see him like three times a year and probably one of those times is at Shorehammer. He lives in kind of the area, but kind of far away. So it's not like a, you know, like around the block or something. So, yes, Andrew, I know for a fact that you have a very busy life, as do I this time of year, and it's funny and topical that you would even mention getting your groove back and all of that, because I have really been struggling the last couple months to stay interested in the hobby, and I played Warhammer, like, basically for the last time um, in, like, May, I'm talking about 40k here, 40k in May, and I did have one fluke game that I played with a, an old friend, Alex, that I told you about on the podcast. But other than that, 40k, I just have not been in the mood to play 40k. And Age of Sigmar, I've been much more in the mood. And obviously, if you listen to the podcast, you know that I've been playing a lot of Age of Sigmar. But I just recently did get the bug to play 40k again. I don't really know why. So let's let's discuss how this goes. You said you get excited about releases when they come out, but you don't have any new releases. And you really don't go to many events, I know that, except for Shorehammer. So, um, that are, that are, those are two things that people use to get excited about the hobby, but you are lacking them. So, I usually come up with a army list theme, something that I would like to do, and I make sure to include some models in it that are not painted or assembled. And then that inspires me to paint or build and paint those models because I personally like to keep kind of a uh, a standard for myself that I do not play unpainted models. And luckily it's ingrained enough in me by now that I just don't play unpainted models. And that is what spurs me to paint the models is because if I really want to play on the tabletop, I'm like, well, I can't play them until, you know, they're painted. So nine times out of 10, I will not play a model unless it's painted. Um, the only reason why is if I, if I have a real sneaking suspicion, it's going to be an awful model and it's not worth my time to paint, then I might play a game or two with it to see how it works out. And if it's as garbage as I think, eh, I may not ever play it with it again. So I'm not going to paint it. But, uh, that is what usually interests me. Or, of course, like you said, if I have an event or a tournament coming up, um, that's always a good reason to motivate yourself to paint some models that you haven't painted before. I personally have been struggling with the same thing because obviously you and I both work a lot of hours and all that. And I just wasn't into 40K. And I was thinking to myself, you know what? It's sad because 40K was my first war game I ever played. 
and Necrons were my first army I ever played, and I was feeling kind of, I don't know, guilty? And maybe that's how you feel, too. I'm feeling kind of guilty that, you know, I've got this whole army, I've got these models, I got a, I've got some that are unpainted and some that are unassembled or whatever, and I just have no oomph to do it. Now, of course, keep in mind, my, my busyness is very seasonal. Yours, I believe, is a little more year-round. So if you're year-round busier... Um, it's not necessarily like your situation is going to change. At least, you know, I'm super busy in the summer, but once the summer's over, I have more free time and it's not totally uncommon for me to like be burned out and worn out through the summer. So I really don't have the oomph to hobby or paint or play or whatever. So that's not uncommon for me, but I think your situation is less seasonal. And then in that case, you're just going to have to get your groove back. And I was looking at my models and I would I would go to where my models are and I'd look at them and then I'd be like, I'm going to go ahead and paint these guys because I've got some Scorpec destroyers that I, I've assembled, but I actually assembled them a year ago, but I've never painted them. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to paint these guys. And I stand there and look at them and I'm like, oh, never mind. And then I just leave the room. And that's basically what I've been doing recently. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to start listening to some podcasts. And I want to hear a review of the Necron Codex, the review of the Necron, you know, how the um, the new updates updated them. And as much as I hate FAQs, you know, I was like, I'll check out whatever they say the FAQs were on, on YouTube. And uh, obviously, while I'm at work. And that occupied me for a little while. And uh, But it did slowly, as I'm listening to them talk about the different units and stuff, I did feel like this excitement slowly start, you know, getting hotter and hotter in, in, inside my mind. And I'm like, you know what? I really could play some Necrons. So then I start thinking about lists or whatever. I'm not much of a list maker, but I start thinking about lists and thinking about, you know, I've got these models that I haven't finished and I've got um 40 Necron warriors that are like 70% painted, but not finished. And then I've got these um eight Locust Destroyers that are like 80% painted but just not finished. And I was thinking about, I'm like, you know what? I haven't shown any love to my Necrons in quite some time. I did paint some Ophidian Destroyers last winter for a tournament. But other than that, oh, I also painted my Monolith for a tournament. But other than that, I really have not done much with my Necrons for a long time. So that podcast, or several of them, or YouTube, whatever, they got me excited to start looking into it again, to then start thinking about it again, and then I was able to kind of get myself back on track um, into, hey, you know what, I really want to play with these guys, and that's exactly what I did. So I um, I just finished a squad of 10 of my warriors, I just painted them, finished, they're completely done, and then I also finished, did the finishing touches on those eight Locust Destroyers. So I'm excited that that is done. It's so hard to reignite that passion inside yourself. And what I was talking with Leroy Jenkins recently, because I've been um, lamenting that I had no oomph to hobby and all that, and then I start feeling guilty, and I feel like I should, and I'm feeling like I'm a big baby and all that, because I'm thinking, you know, it's just painting. It's not like I'm digging a ditch. Sure, I might be tired from work, but I can't paint. Like, it doesn't seem right. And he was like, you know, sometimes you just need a break from it. And that was the case for me. I took the longest break I've ever taken from 40K, which is about two full months. <laughs> and I know some of you take years, but I took two full months off 40K, played Brutality base of basically all of June and half of July, and then played uh, Age of Sigmar 
and brutality for these last three or four weeks. So, um, but that is what has rekindled my interest in this game. So hopefully my podcast or other podcasts or whatever can get you excited about it again. Another thing, Andrew, is I know you don't get to play very often. So that's another big deal for me. There's no way I enjoy painting enough that I'm going to just paint models that I don't think I'm going to get to play for months. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I don't know if there's something you can change about your schedule or what, but you really need to get some games in, and I know you're going to enjoy yourself. You always enjoy yourself when I see you a handful of times a year. And I think... I don't think you enjoy painting just like I don't really enjoy painting for the sake of it. I think we're pretty much in the same boat. And I know we both really focus on playing. So I think probably, in conjunction with you working so much you don't get games in, so somewhere deep inside your psyche, you're like, you know, what's the point? I'm not going to paint these models because there's no new releases for the armies I'm into, and I'm certainly not going to play a game with them, so it's kind of like a a moot point at that point. So even though you may be worn out, you may not be f- feeling like uh, pursuing this hobby, maybe what you should do is get some YouTube channels that you like or podcasts that you like or whatever, And try to reignite your interest in one of your armies and maybe watch some battle reports. Battle reports aren't really my thing, but I know a lot of people get a lot of use out of them. And um, there's no real hard and fast way to say that, that you can get your hobby back when you've lost it. But I'm certain it's temporary. You've been in this hobby for decades and I'm certain it's temporary. It could just be a combination of different things in your life, work, family, all that in conjunction with no new releases, which usually get you excited, and you're going to have to kind of probe, you know, check out a podcast, check out a YouTube, check out a whatever. Maybe just pick up your book. Maybe pick up one of your books and go, okay, is there a build that I could do that I've never done before? Like, what if I just do 36 scarabs? What if I just do all scarabs, if I'm talking about Necrons? Or what if I do, um, I don't know, three terror geists in my Flesh Eater courts, or whatever? And that might get you excited to start painting some stuff and maybe math hammering or um, theory hammering some stuff. And, I mean, that's really all I can do is tell you to try to probe inside yourself. (laughs) It came out weird. Um, (laughs) uh, Search your feelings, I guess I'll say. Search your feelings, not rectally, and... Try to find out what is going to ignite that spark again. And that's just what worked for me. And also, you might want to go back down to the basics of what you really enjoy about the hobby the most. And for me, I was thinking, you know what? I need to get back to basics. I need to start Necrons again. Because Necrons were my my first army. They were my baby. And, um, you know, it's been a long time without them. So hopefully you'll make it to the game club soon. And hopefully we'll see you soon. And uh, hopefully you can find something that will get you excited again. And thank you for writing in. Want that or want that not? On this edition of Want That or Want That Not, we're covering the Warhammer Underworld's Nether Maze Hexbane's Hunters. Nether Maze! I like Nether Maze. Anyway, it's $42 for six models. What's that? $7 a piece? $7 a piece. You also get some cards, which I care not about. 
Honestly, I could not care if these these two decks of cards lived or died. If they could be at the top of a list of decks of cards I don't care about. So I'm not even going to talk about them. One's backed with blue, one's backed with yellow, okay? Are you happy now? Let's get back to the models. There is six models, and two of them are dogs. So, for you dog lovers out there, there's dogs. They're not particularly interesting sculpts of dogs. I mean, they're fine. I actually can't really tell what type of dog they are. They're some, not like a, maybe they're Rottweilers. I think maybe they're Rottweilers. They're not painted like Rottweilers. I really can't tell. Um, but they're two just regular dudes, regular dogs just standing there. They're not like in some action pose, kind of like those Fenrisian wolves are like all running and they're angry. Now these dogs are like chilling at the dog park and someone will not stop messaging me on Messenger. And uh, these dogs are totally fine. You know, there actually is some merit in dog models because dog models and cat models are actually pretty hard to find. D&D makes just a few, and oftentimes companies don't make dogs in the right scale. They just don't make dogs, I guess, because they're so small. Um, I actually have procured some dog and cat miniatures and rabbits and i bought this whole thing on etsy a while ago uh has nothing to do with warhammer underworld's nether maze but i did buy them on uh, a whole bag of different animals like familiars so that was cool but these guys these two dogs are worth getting i think because dogs are not easy to get these particular dogs are not super exciting so let's move on to the others but they do have some intrinsic value because they are dogs there's a big dude back there. He's got like some uh some plate mail and he's got a big old axe. Looks like a giant fireman's axe with a pick in the back of it. Um he's fine. He looks very fantasy-esque and he's got a fireman's axe. And that's that's all you need to know about that guy. He's bald if that does anything for you. He's totally fine. Maybe just a little cooler than fine, but yeah, he's fine. Then You've got what looks like a bald woman, but I think she's got a cap on. It's really hard to tell. And what's neat about her is she's got um, three spikes on a strap on her thigh, which is pretty cool, Like um, or stakes like you'd kill a vampire with. That's actually kind of cool. She's also got um, a foot up on this terrain feature, and she also has an axe, which is like, what's with these people in axes? But more interestingly, she's got like a uh, flintlock pistol. And she is slightly better than the first guy. Then you've got a guy in full plate mail. I mean, this dude is decked out. He practically looks like a Stormcast. And he's got a crossbow. To be honest, I find him slightly less interesting than the first two. Because it's just so darn generic. You could look at any medieval troop or whatever with a crossbow and armor. And this guy would blend right into the crowd. But the big deal of this group, beyond the dogs, beyond the two semi-cool people in the background, beyond the very mediocre guy in the middle, there is a witch hunter. And the witch hunter, or maybe vampire hunter, not positive, he also has stakes on a bandolier around his torso. And he's got that inquisitor, or that witch hunter helmet, helmet, hat that I love so much. He also has a torch and something like a mask covering his face and a flintlock pistol as well. He actually looks pretty cool. Still nothing like super amazing, but he does look pretty cool. I've always liked those witch hunter getups, and I think he looks pretty neat. So the dogs, 
are slightly better than med just because they're dogs and they're hard to find miniatures. The two people in the back are slightly above average. The guy in the middle is extremely average. And the guy up front is uh, a little more than slightly above average. So for $42, $7 a model, would I get this or would I not get it? Now, this warband does scream useful and brutality, 100%. But I don't really see too much that's like really worth buying them at $7 a piece. And then like... I gotta throw away the deck of cards, and oh man, it's such like an ordeal, right? So I gotta open up the package, I gotta take them out, ugh, never mind, $42? No thanks. Uh, truth be told, they're actually okay, but I'm not, not interested in them, so that is a want that not for me for the Hexbane's Hunters. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. Well, I guess you stumbled into the Real Talk with the Pimcron, and tonight I want to take another stab at narrative games. So, as I've said before, narrative games, I've covered some different ways to play narrative games in the past, but uh, I had been developing this for a while, and it makes things very interesting, I think. And matter of fact, it actually could be a very interesting format for a tournament. It would be a little bit of work before each battle, but it could be pretty neat. And I had this idea rolling around in my head for quite some time. and um, But Just James and I put it to the test, and it was actually quite fun. So, do we... The first question to this is, do we metagame the game? For instance, in real life, any two armies come together. They may not have the ideal units on the field for the mission, because they may have had the mission sprung on them. Now, obviously, you're talking about logistics of future tech and all that, but typically, in the past, which, of course, 40k is really like World War II tactics, it really is, um, in the past, you often did not have the intel for what was around you, and you would stumble upon, oh my gosh, my Eldar jet bikes ran into a whole squadron of Lehman Rust tanks, and you would run into horrible situations where like, you really couldn't deal with easily whatever the problem was and um, maybe they're encroaching on your territory or whatever so but never in a battle have they been like ah you beat me the French Revolution they're like ah you you beat me 13 to 4 ah man like no victory points are not a real thing in real life obviously you can look at attrition or, or casualties or whatever but ultimately, every battle comes down to an actual goal and not some numerical value. This really reminds me of how Dungeons & Dragons works and people min-max stuff when it doesn't necessarily make narrative sense, right? It's like if you know that, let's say, I don't even know, um, let's say, okay, let's not do D&D, let's do Oblivion. Lockpicking is super helpful in Oblivion. So even though you're doing a wizard who in your head has never been a thief, he's never lockpicked anything in his life, you're definitely going to put a lot of points in lockpick because you know it's going to be very helpful in the game. Which is one thing, on a side tangent, I don't like about games is when they make, uh, they make some characteristics or skills way more applicable. Because I always like to do like the charismatic characters and things like that. And charisma a lot of times has very little bearing on video games or otherwise and meanwhile like lock picking well that would be like an auto take right 
Um, or what about the archery? The, what, stealth archer lockpick guy is like the paradigm or whatever for uh, Oblivion that everyone does because it works the best. And you do all that double extra damage when you're, you know, sniping someone out with a uh, bow and arrow. So that right there is metagaming. You know what is best because this is a video game and it's not real life. Where in real life, you know, you could make any set of skills work for you, whether it be charisma or enchanting or whatever. It's not just about lockpicking. But you know this is a Bethesda game and lockpicking is a big deal so, you know, you got to put a bunch of points in lockpicking, even though your dude might have just like been raised in a cave or something and never even seen a lock. Oh, well, because it's going to be benefiting me in the game, I definitely am going to put points in lockpicking. So that is kind of like uh, MMOs. That's another thing. And I'm mentioning all this to illustrate how we metagame these games so much. MMOs are like the worst example of metagaming a game. So... In essence, a massively multiplayer online RPG is supposed to be this sprawling world where you can be social online and you can form guilds and you can go on quests and there should be a strong narrative to it. But what do people do? Well, it's typical for an MMO player to rush to max level and just grind as quickly and as hard as they possibly can to reach max level as quick as possible. To the point where they're clicking through dialogue options and stuff. Just like, all right, all right, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. In this conversation. And then they just find the, follow the map marker to wherever they're going. And they really don't care about the narrative. And it's almost so meta that why is there even like skin on it? Skin on the game. Like, because whatever you're doing, you could be grinding. It could be sci-fi. It could be medieval. It could be Sesame Street. It could be whatever you want. Because you're not really paying attention to the story at all. You don't give a crap about the story. You want to get to max level. And then because those people do that, and they're all about the race to max level, then the developers have to obviously cater to them, right? Because that's what their demographic is. So then they have to make all the leveling super, super granular and you got to level for an hour to get a plus one in this one skill, and you need ten skills at a plus one in order to get a level up, and then, I mean, it's like, oh my god, it, the MMOs and the reason why I don't play them is the grinding, and I do not like grinding, that's why I quit playing Pokemon when I was a, a young 20-year-old, um, because the grinding just drove me nuts, I got too much stuff to do in my life to, to grind needlessly on a game. So MMOs are the same way. Um, they make all of this like super petty, trait, repetitive grinding because they want to slow you down as much as possible and make it harder to level up to max level. But then when you finally do level up to max level, you need something to do. So then they have, sometimes games have the best content at max level because they know that there's no point to give you good content until you are max level because you're going to be so preoccupied with doing, you know, I I raise wheat and thresh it for gold and that raises up my harvesting skill. And once my harvesting skill levels high enough, then I level and then I can put more points in something else. And you're totally metagaming it. You're supposed to be getting in that game, making a character, making a backstory and following the actual lore. Oh, man. This person wants me to kill rats in their cellar. Oh my gosh, it's a it's a backstab, and now they're going to rob me, or whatever. 
No, people do not care about that, and they metagame it. So then the developers are forced to cater to that, and then they hide some of their best stuff after you get to max level because they know you're finally paying attention and you actually want to play the game to play the game, which to me is totally backwards. It's just it's just so backwards. And the reason why I bring all this up is because it reminds me a lot of Games Workshop at this moment and our entire community as a whole. And no, I'm not throwing any shade because I've been part of this for a long time. For uh, 13 years or so, I've been playing Warhammer. And I have been part of this. I love victory points. I love objectives. I love all of that stuff because it does give you an idea of, oh, who won? Well, man, it was really close, but you got 12 points. I got 11. I guess you won. Like, it gives you a definitive answer. But if you're really hearkening back to when the game began... It wasn't about victory points. It was about telling a story. It was like a pseudo RPG, pseudo war game, somewhat similar to Brutality, how that's got a lot of narrative parts in it, but it's also a skirmish game. Guys, I'm about to turn off my phone and I really wish I could, but I can't because of work and I keep getting messages. It's driving me nuts. And then right on cue, it goes off again, like for real. Anyway, if I can have 30 seconds without my phone going off or an employee con, there's another message. Another employee calling me. I usually edit this stuff out, but I'm not tonight because I don't feel like it, and you should uh, join in my torment. Anyway, so what I'm saying is, is that in real life, a lot of times you don't have full control over what your forces were, and victory was often a binary thing. It was often, hey, you did take the bridge, or no, you did not take the bridge, or yes, you survived, or no, you didn't survive. It's very, very... Um, straightforward, and I mean, in most games, even if you didn't have points, right, even if you had no points at all, you could nine times out of ten figure out who won each game, right? You would know, oh, you know what, given another turn, you would have beat me, or whatever. So, without too much more gerrymandering here, I had been talking with Just James, and we decided, let's do a truly narrative game. Let's both stand back and watch this story unfold. It's not me versus you. It isn't, even though we're still going to make the most logical choices for our people. And I will control the Necrons, and he brought his um, Blood Angels. I said, let's just throw something together. So I decided that in order to uh, illustrate that you don't always have control over your forces, or that you may be able to maneuver around your opponents that you don't want to fight... I decided, let's do this. We're going to make four 500-point lists, and each opponent gets to choose one of the four lists that they don't want to face, and we'll end up playing a 1,500-point game. And that turned out super fun. So he had one list that had Mephiston and Dante and Sanguinary Guard in it. And I was like, you know what? Nope, I don't want to face them. So then, so then he saw my, um, he actually left in my monolith, which it didn't do a whole lot. You know, the monolith's not great, but he did, uh, he did take out all of my locust destroyers and scarabs and something else that I had in one of my detachments. So in other words, he saw, okay, you know, the, the enemy, oh, the locust destroyers, oh, let's, let's stay away from them. Let's attack from over here. And basically, I did the same thing. I'm like, oh, crap, Dante's around that corner. Oh, let's let's fight over here and, and not draw him into this. And it was pretty fun. And also, you're not entirely sure 
what you're starting the game with. Now you got a pretty good idea, right? Um, we also didn't use any detachments whatsoever. We just used, um, they, they weren't patrol, they weren't four 500 point patrol detachments. We didn't do any of that. We just treated them as battle forged and we used basically match play rules, but you didn't have to fill any sort of force org. So if you wanted HQs, take them. If you don't, don't. It's kind of whatever. Um, so that's actually kind of neat because people talk about their list, right? They think about their list for tournaments so much and they math hammer and they theory hammer and they do all this stuff. And it would be kind of interesting if they're never entirely sure what they're going to take because on round one, let's say my catacomb command barge uh, list, the 500 point list got taken out. So then I played with the other three. And then in my second game, my um, my monolith got taken out because he didn't have anything to do against heavy we- heavy vehicles or whatever. And then my third game, one of the other lists got taken out. It's kind of interesting because um, also you can try to avoid the things you most fear from their army. So I thought it was pretty cool. And it turned out really fun. We both enjoyed it. We also... Um, we decided, okay, let's just do something that is somewhat... Uh, realistic. Let's say this building in the very middle of the board is the objective and you are trying to get to that objective and I am trying to keep you away from it. And then we kind of came up real quick with, oh, somebody was was drilling or digging under this building and then all of a sudden they ran into an underground crypt world and then all these Necrons start pouring out. Blood Angels happen to be on the planet or nearby, so they decided, oh crap, we need to squash these Necrons. So he deployed in the four corners of the board because we were playing on a four by four and I deployed within six inches of this building. And that's what we did. And then we decided, okay, so we're going to roll off and um, that determines who's going to start deploying first because um, that way, if he rolls higher than me, then he was stealthier than I was and he will make me deploy first or vice versa. We spotted him or whatever. And, then the same thing with going first on the first turn. So he made me deploy first, and he also got to go first on the first turn. So his Blood Angels hatched a, a really clever infiltration plan, and then they assaulted all at once. Um, his Sanguinary Guards smashed into my warriors. I had 20 warriors there. And uh, his list ended up being, in case you care, uh, 10 Sanguinary Guard, the Sanguinary Banner Guy, and a Chaplain. He also had a Judicar and an Impulsor and a Repulsor, I think they're called. And then he had like 10 Reavers and 10 Tac Marines, and he had uh, 5 Assault Marines. And I think that was his whole list. And then I had a Monolith, 20 Flayed Ones, 2 tech Technomancers, Catacomb Command Barge, 20 Warriors, 6 Wraiths, and 10 Triarch Praetorians. That's what I ended up with. And it was a bloody battle. Ultimately, I did win, and we could tell that. But at the last game, the last turn, and by the way, in real life, battles don't end on turn 5. So we decided, you know what? We're going to play this until it logically plays itself out. And because GW designed this to be 5 turns it does still pretty much end on turn five. I mean, if you've got some sort of clutch maneuver you want to do or whatever, it could go to turn six. And in a very small chance, it would actually go to turn seven if you're still not positive who won the the outcome. But it was super fun. And what was even funnier is, is that we were laughing and joking the whole time, A, because me and James get along 
pretty darn well. And B, we were both like, oh my God, did you see those Sanguinary Guard just butcher like 16 out of my 20 warriors? Like, it was nuts. But then my Catacomb Command Barge jumped in and my Wraiths jumped in and we countercharged and um, his Repulsor did absolutely nothing to my monolith on the first turn. And he had the last talons and the last cannons and all that did nothing to it. And so that allowed the monolith to drift down and just nuke his sanguinary guard before the wraiths mopped them up. And, uh, but then in the second or third turn, the repulsor finally decided to roll and he did like 11 damage from his last cannons on my monolith. And that doesn't even count all the other stuff he shot it with. So that was pretty cool. And on the last turn of the game, my monolith had one hit point left, and he decided to ram into the monolith with his repulsor. And um, so, so he charges in with the repulsor, and my monolith only has one hit point left, and he rolled a uh, six to hit, or whatever, the Assault Doctrine thing where it's an extra AP. So he actually did hit, and I had three three-ups to make. And I failed one of them. So my monolith died because the repulsor, like um, uh, Dukes of Hazard style, slammed into the side of it to destroy it in the last turn. That was pretty awesome. At the end of the game, I had a good portion of my army left. I kept returning warriors. So uh, with my tech marines, or tech marines, uh, technomancers, I had like four wraiths left and uh, catacomb command barge and like six of my triarch praetorians and like six or seven of my warriors, and then uh, my flayed ones were all dead, and one of my uh, technomancers were actually dead. So that was, um. but the rest of his army was pretty much gone. He had his repulsor left at the end, and we both agreed that my forces would definitely take out his repulsor, so he agreed to just concede and retreat. So his repulsor retreated, and I was thinking, you know, James, this was really fun. Because it wasn't about, oh, you, you've got fully painted models, you get 10 points. Oh, wait, my secondaries? Oh, yeah, my secondaries, I gotta be in this corner of the board. Why do you want to be in this corner of the board? Oh, I don't know. I just want to be in it. Like, it, uh, some of it seems so not narrative, and it, it just drives me nuts sometimes. Now, of course, you play however you want. And I am not a hater of match play. That's the only way I usually want to play. But I was thinking to myself, why don't you mix open play or narrative play with matched play and come up with something logical that is the reason why you're fighting. Like you're trying to make it across the board and break their line or, or whatever and make sure it's not super unattainable or make sure it's not super attainable. Right? Like, um, and, and just talk with your opponent and man, that was one of the most fun games I've had in quite some time because there was no pressure. When I rolled terrible, I was like, ah, crap, those guys died, you know? And then when he actually rammed his impulsor, uh, repulsor into my monolith, we both, like, cheered when I failed the save because like, that was so epic. And we ended up telling a story together versus it's, oh, it's me versus you, even though I was still doing the target priority and all the rolling for my army. Same thing with him. But we weren't invested in the game in the way that it was me versus him. It was just, hey, let's roll some dice and see how this story pans out, right? These are the two forces that happened to be here, and let's see how they they match up. And that was a lot of fun. 
And really one of my goals there was to make sure that I did not, I, I made things kind of uncheesable. So of course you can make cheesy lists with the four 500 point lists, but you can't be guaranteed that you're going to um, have the thing you want. Because likely if you're going to bring Mortarion or something, they're going to take that out, that list out. And they're going to be like, no, no Mortarion. So you can't be 100% sure what you're getting. And also, if you're going to spam units, let's say, oh, I'm going to get smart. I'm going to put death. I only own 10 Deathwing Knights. So I'm going to put 10 Deathwing Knights in this one list and 10 in the other list. Well, you can't really do that because you only own 10. So it doesn't allow you to cheese it as well. You'd have to put 5 and 5. But then there's a fairly good chance, 25% chance, that you're not going to get one of those five-man squads in your list because your opponent will choose to exclude that one. So it actually makes it more realistic and it also makes it a lot more fun because you, it's not so much about you math hammering as well because you can't be positive what you're going to bring to the table. And if you feel like you're, if you took a bunch of anti-tank stuff and he only has one list that has tanks, well, you're definitely going to keep that list in, you know, but then there's, you might want to take out his, swarms of guardsmen in the other one because your las cannons aren't going to do much against guardsmen that sort of thing it's there's definitely some strategy also we also said that um in addition to making different lists and being able to choose which ones are excluded from our opponents we also decided to do just a yes or no did i win or did i not win a very obvious answer and i think that could be tweaked a little further actually we were debating on saying that maybe he picks like three models in secret in his army and they've got like these massive melt-a-bomb nuke things and he like writes it underneath their base or he puts a sticker under their base or something so only he knows the ones that are equipped with this thing that if they get in base contact with my base that they can detonate it like throw it down the hole and that would be really interesting too and so thematic so then i'm really like oh crap who is gonna have this you know he could put all three of them in one one squad if he wanted um, or maybe we would say it has to be three different squads. But either way, that could be a lot of fun. You can't be engaged with the enemy. You got to be in base contact. And it's basically an action. You know, you can't shoot or charge or whatever. You have to throw it down the hole. And that would be fun. So we feel like this might be the beginning of a campaign. This could be a lot of fun. Um, whether or not we'll do that, I don't know. But you can definitely see the merit in starting a campaign like this. So now we've driven them off, and now my Necrons could go on the offensive. They're pouring out of this hole and taking over stuff, and uh, that that could be pretty fun. So I just wanted to let you know, this is part of the way I got my groove back into Warhammer, and I had a lot of fun with it, and it was so stress-free to just throw dice with a friend and see what the story unfolds as, you know, how it ends up. So anyway, I think we are too meta into the game. With stats and numbers and all of that, I think we've really lost sight of what the original Warhammer was. And just like the MMO developers, Games Workshop, being that everyone basically meta plays the game with, oh, see, this unit's better than this unit, it's more point efficient, or, oh, if I use this stratagem, I can blah, blah, blah. Like, all of that, especially netlisting and all of that, that's no different from you churning through the levels on an MMO to get the max level. You're trying to rip the heart out of the game in order to win most efficiently or something like that. And I'm being a little dramatic here because obviously 
nobody wants to play with like the garbage units like and obviously every codex has some lower tier units but if you're not playing super competitively then the lower tier units don't seem so bad you know but anyway so I was thinking we were thinking uh why don't we do equivalent points I own a lot of scarabs like at least 36 of them and we we're like why don't we do some of your space marines go down in that cavern and they get attacked by an equivalent number of scarabs uh, equivalent points number of scarabs and that would be pretty fun so we might end up doing that that would be really cool but anyway thank you so much for listening and thank you to gamemat.eu for supporting the show and thank you to my beautiful sexy good smelling patreon patrons i'll see you all next week